Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. We're always going to start where we've been starting the past few weeks in Romans chapter 8, verse 30. Because we're talking about the order of salvation. And so, how God saves sinners. And so, salvation's the big umbrella. But within that big umbrella, there's different aspects of what God has done. So, we go back to, and in Romans 8, 30 is not a comprehensive verse, but it does tell us, kind of in a nutshell, the order, both logically and theologically, of how God saves us. So, Romans 8:30, those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. So, we spent 3 weeks on predestination that happened in eternity past when God chose us before the foundation of the world. We talked about calling, those whom he called. There's an external call, there's an internal call. Then last week we talked about faith and repentance. That's our response to the call in our life, we personally repent and we believe. But next there, notice it says, those whom he called, he also justified. Now, we don't see faith or belief in that passage, but we're going to go earlier in Romans to find out that we are justified freely through faith. Okay? So, you guys know the Protestant Reformation, October 31st, it's not Halloween, it's Reformation Day, 1517. Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses on the door of the Wittenberg Church there in Germany. And what he was doing was he was protesting indulgences. Do you guys know what indulgences are? Indulgences are basically where you can go pay a price to get somebody that's died and gone to purgatory to get out of purgatory. Basically, they were using that money to fund building of a lot of, like, buildings. So, the Roman Catholic Church. So, there was a saying, there, there was a guy, uh, Pope Leo X, sent a guy out called Tetzel, and he was in charge of going through the European countryside. You know what, can I do this? I think this is a dead spot, because last week I kept getting dead, and then Sunday morning when I preached from the stage... There was no dead spot. Are you guys okay if I go up on the stage like I do on Sunday mornings? Okay. She's going to have to adjust the camera, but I don't think we're going to get the dead spots if I go. I'm just trying to be down here so I can be intimate. I feel like I'm preaching if I'm up here, but I may start preaching. (laughs) You never know, but you're so far away down there. I just don't think there's as many dead spots. Are we good, Tarina? Sorry, live stream people. We're making a midstream change in venue here, so is that better? Okay. So Pope Leo X sent John Tetzel out to collect these indulgences. And there was a saying during that time that said this, As soon as the coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. And so basically, it was this whole idea that you could buy somebody out of purgatory. And so the Protestant Reformation had two big issues that were part of what was going on. The two big issues was, number one, who has authority? Is it the Bible alone, or is it the Bible plus the Roman Catholic Church? 
So who's ultimately the authority? The other issue was faith. Is it faith alone, like we talked about last week? Or is it faith plus the sacraments or faith plus something that you do? And so the whole Protestant Reformation's argument, and there's other issues too, was going back to we are justified by faith alone. Okay, and so the Latin word for this is sola fide. You've got the five solas. You've got solus Christa, sola gratia, sola fide. It just means faith alone. Now, oftentimes I'll reference the R.C. Sproul Ligonier Ministry and the Lifeway um, American Theology, the, theolo- the study of theology uh, study that comes out about every two years. So back in 2016, they asked 3,000 Americans about some doctrinal areas. Um, here are the results. This, this is not Christians. This is just 3,000 adults that they asked the question. So here's, here's the question or the statement. People have the ability to turn to God on their own initiative. 70% agreed with that. Everyone sins a little, but most people are good by nature. agreed with that. And here's the one. By the good deeds that I do, I partly contribute to earning my place in heaven. 52% agreed with that. And then here's the one that's the shocker. Okay, An individual must contribute his or her own effort for personal salvation. You want to know how many people agree with that? 77%. So the vast majority of Americans believe that you have to do something to contribute to your salvation. Now, as we talked about last week, there is something that we do. We believe. The Holy Spirit doesn't believe for us. God doesn't believe for us. We personally believe. But as we talked about last week, even that belief is a gift that God gives us because we're dead in sin. So what we're going to talk about today is what what happens, what does God do the instant you place your faith in Jesus Christ by faith alone? Okay, so let's go back in the book of Romans. Let's go to Romans chapter 3. So we are going to be in Romans chapter 3 and Romans chapter 5. And so tonight's not going to be so much of a uh, all over the place we're going to stick in one passage of scripture we're going to go to galatians for a little bit but we're going to predominantly just do a verse by verse exposition through romans chapter 3 verses 21 through 26 romans 3 21 through 26 and we'll also be in romans chapter 5 Leon Morris was an Australian commentator, scholar. He said that this may be possibly the most single, this may be the most single important paragraph ever written, (laughs) what we're going to look at tonight. Martin Lloyd-Jones called this passage the Acropolis of the Bible and the Christian faith. So, this is actually one of my most favorite passages of Scripture because it packs Everything about the Christian faith in one condensed passage of Scripture. But what we're primarily going to be looking at tonight is this whole issue of what does it mean to be justified? Justification by faith alone. So if you have your Bibles, Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 21. 
Actually, let me give you some background before we get there, okay? (laughs) You thought we were going to jump right in. So let me tell you, Romans chapter 1, Paul says the gospel is the power of God of salvation of all who believe for the Jew first and then the Gentile. Then he goes on, the second half of Romans chapter 1, he basically says, Gentiles, you guys are sinful, you guys are um, under God's wrath, you're idolaters. And the Jews are sitting there going, oh, that's awesome, Paul, get the Gentiles. You, you get them, Paul, those wicked Gentiles. And then chapter 2, Paul says, now wait a minute, Jews. You're actually just as bad. And actually, you're probably worse because you know better. You have the Ten Commandments. You grew up in synagogue. You know what God's law is. But you're just as much under God's wrath as well because you're not living up to God's standard. You're under his wrath. And then in chapter 3, he says, okay, in case I didn't make my point clear enough, both Jews and Gentiles are still under God's wrath. So Romans chapter 1, through the middle of Romans chapter 3, is sin upon sin upon sin, guilt upon guilt upon guilt. And then if you look at verse 20, let's just go to verse 20. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Paul's argument is you can't do anything, any work, any obedience, any amount of human effort that's going to make you right before God. So the ultimate question that every single human being has to face is, how am I right before a holy God? How am I, how am I in the right? How do I have a right relationship with a holy God? And almost every world religion tries to answer that with their method of something that you've got to do in order to be right with whatever God it is. Because we're hardwired as humans to want to work or earn, or do something to gain the favor of whatever God it is you worship, or whatever spirituality. And Paul says, it's not by works of the law, it's not by doing anything that you're justified. And then there's a but in verse 21. So that's where we're going to start tonight. He's shifting gears in the middle of the book of Romans and saying, I've spent three chapters talking about sin and guilt and wrath and how you can't do anything to please God, but now, here's the good news. Okay? And if you did an exposition of Romans, you'd be like, after three chapters, like, Paul, we get the point. We're sinners. Get to the good news. And like, here we are. Here's the good news. So Romans chapter 3, verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there's no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So this righteousness is not a product of anything that you can do. Even if you thought you could do something righteous, what does Paul tell us in Isaiah 64, 6? We've all become like one who's unclean. All our righteous deeds are like what? A polluted garment. We fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind carry us away. 
So even if we think we're doing something good enough to earn God's favor, God looks at that work or God looks at that effort and says, that's a polluted garment. That's a dirty rag. It's nothing in my sight. It's not going to get you anywhere. So what I want to do tonight, I could give you a theological definition of justification by faith, and I'll get to that. But what I want to do is I just want to go through the text because what we see here in the text tonight are five glorious truths about justification by faith alone. So we're just going to follow Paul's flow of thought here, and we're going to unpack what does it mean to be justified by faith alone. And so the first thing that we're going to look at is the need, the need for justification. Why do we need to be justified? And we've got verse 23, which probably most of you have memorized. What does verse 23 say? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And that's just repetition of what Paul said earlier in chapters 1 through 3. It's a summary statement. Is there anybody left out? What does he say? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so we have all sinned in the sense that that's our nature. We're sinners by nature because of Adam's sin. We're born depraved. We've sinned individually because we are born in Adam. And notice what Paul says there. For all have sinned and what? Fall short. Now, it's interesting, when you look at the Greek grammar there, that word fall short's in what we would call a present tense. So you could literally say, we are continually, without Jesus, okay, this is our pre, pre-conversion, pre-regeneration, we are continually, ongoingly, as a lifestyle, as our total character, always falling short of God's glory. We're always falling short. And that means we're lacking His glory. We're deprived. And it's interesting, what does Paul say there? Paul could have said, for all have sinned and fall short of obeying God. Is that what he says? For all have sinned and fall short of doing good works. Is that what he says? No. For all have sinned and fall short of what? The glory of God. So ultimately, the ultimate issue related to us as humans is that we have failed to glorify God properly. Now, this is not, nothing new. If we, if we were to study the whole book of Romans, Paul already addressed this in chapter 1. We do not worship God. We do not glorify Him. We are continually falling short of His glory. We are ultimately sin. We're born in sin. We're dead in sin. We are desperately in need to be right before God. So the big question is, okay, if we're constantly falling short of God, what's the answer? How am I ever going to get right before God? What's the, what's the solution? So Paul basically says, okay, here's the problem. The problem is you need justification. You need to be right before God. You're always falling short. So the first thing is we've got to understand our need. You're not going to understand, you're not going to appreciate your salvation until you first understand, I need salvation. I am a sinner. I'm always falling short of God's glory. I need this righteousness that makes me acceptable before God. So the first thing we see is the need. Okay, Now, let's look at number two, the source of justification. Now, I want you to notice where this justification comes from. Now, notice I haven't defined justification for you yet. I will in just a moment. But notice verse 21, a righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Verse 22, the righteousness of God. So this righteousness is 
from God. In other words, it is not something we produce. It's not inherent within us. No matter how hard we try, we can't produce this righteousness. We can't do enough to earn it. It's got to come from outside of us. It's got to come from God. And that's what Paul's arguing here. It's a righteousness that comes not from yourselves, but from God. Also, he says this righteousness has been manifested. It's been revealed publicly. It's a righteousness that's been revealed. The law and the prophets bear witness to it. It's a righteousness that has been revealed. Verse 26, it was to show his righteousness at the present time. Now, it's probably referring to the death of Christ on the cross when it was originally revealed and then the continuing effects of that that stand completed today. So the source of our justification is God's righteousness. Now, I want to just turn over to Galatians real quick because Paul, Galatians and Romans both teach the doctrine of justification by faith alone very strongly. So we're still looking at the five big things of justification. We've looked at the need. We're sinners and we need it. Number two, the source. It's got to come from God. It can't come from us. But let's go over to Galatians and see what Paul says there, and then I'm going to define it for you, okay? So go to Galatians chapter 2. We're going to come back to Galatians 3 in just a moment. But go to Galatians chapter 2, and let's, let's look at verses 15 through 21. Do you have like an uninspired heading in your Bible? What does your uninspired heading say? Mine says justified by faith. Does yours say? Okay. And again, those are, those are uninspired headings that the translators put in there. To... All right, so here we go. Galatians 2, 15 through 21. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law I died to the law so that I might live to God. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Okay, what does Paul say there? We are not justified by works, but through, through faith in Jesus Christ Believing in Jesus Christ. So we are justified through faith. Now here's the big question we've been waiting to answer tonight. What does it mean to be justified? I'm assuming you kind of know what that means, but I haven't defined it yet. But Paul's been using it over and over again. You're not justified by works, you're justified through faith in Christ. So, so what does it mean to be justified? Well, let me give you the definition, and then let me give you an illustration. So the word comes from both the legal world as well as the banking world. So I want you to think of courtroom imagery, and I want you to think of bank accounts. So it, it's, the original language 
conveys both of those. So what it means is to declare that somebody is in the right. It's, it's a legal declaration. It's a verdict by God as the judge of the universe who because of Christ's righteousness being imputed or reckoned to you, you can now be given a new status. Okay, so I've given this illustration numerous, numerous times, but I'm going to give it again. Okay, I thought about making a little sheet to hand out, but, but just, okay, so I've got, you guys understand bank accounts. I'm sure, Jerry, you really understand bank accounts after <laughs> what's been happening to you the past few weeks. So, all right, ledgers, different sides of the ledger, okay, accounting language, okay. So, pretend like on this side of the ledger is your life. Your life is a bank account. Okay, before Christ is in your life, this is your life as a bank account, okay? So, and you're also in the courtroom. So your life is a bank account, you're in the courtroom. God is the judge. God is the judge in the court down, courtroom, looks down upon your life before Christ. And what God looks down and sees in your bank account, your spiritual bank account, he sees a negative gazillion dollar balance because you have so much sin in your life. So what legal declaration is God going to make upon your life if you have a negative gazillion dollar balance? What's God going to say about you? He's going to declare you to be what? Guilty, guilty, guilty. Now, Paul's already argued you can't produce any type of positive righteousness. You can't do anything to get yourself out of this guilt. You are guilty, guilty, guilty. Okay. Now, pretend like on the other side of the ledger over here is Jesus. The life of Jesus. Okay? We know Jesus died on the cross. We know he's the perfect lamb of God. He, has a per- he, he, obeyed G- he obeyed the Father in thought, word, and deed. He's perfect. Okay, so here's what happens. There's a transaction that takes place. So this transaction comes through faith. So when you place your faith in Jesus, that negative balance in your account goes out of your account and it's reckoned, or it's credited, or it's imputed, or it's debited, whatever banking word you want to use, there's a, it's transferred out of your account and brought to Jesus' account. Okay? Now, what does that leave you over here? It leaves you what? Zero. Which is good, right? You want to be out of debt. But is zero enough? Is anybody, I mean, nobody wants to be a negative gazillion debt, but nobody wants to have zero on their bank account. Okay, so at that point, when you believe in Jesus and your sins are taken to him, you are forgiven, but your status only goes to zero. So you still don't have a positive balance. So there's another transaction that takes place, and this happens through faith. The righteousness of Christ, his perfect record, his perfect righteousness, the life that he lived, the holiness of him, is credited or debited or transferred to you. Now, did you produce that righteousness? No, it was given to you as a gift. It came from outside of you, but it's credited to you. So now you are credited with the positive righteousness of Christ. What can God do now as the judge? God looks down upon your life, your spiritual life, and what does God see? He sees Jesus, and he sees the record of Jesus. And he sees the righteousness of Jesus. And then God can make a legal declaration. God can say, now, not guilty. It's permanent. It's a permanent standing. Now, it happens through, through faith. Faith is the channel. And we'll talk about that in a moment here. It happens through faith. 
But where does the righteousness come from? Does it come from you? No, it comes as a gift from Jesus to you that secures your standing. Does that make sense, the bank account? So every single one of us without Jesus stands guilty before a holy God. We cannot produce the righteousness. We need a righteousness from outside of us. So when we believe in Jesus, our sins are credited to him. His righteousness is credited to us. And therefore, God can legally declare us to be not guilty. And so 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus took upon our sin. He forgave us and then we were credited with his righteousness. So that is the definition of what it means to be justified. It doesn't mean that you're infused with righteousness. I'm just going to I'm going to go on a tangent here. It just popped in my head, but it's not in your notes, okay? We have a lot of Rome people coming out of a Roman Catholic background. We have a lot of people in this community that are part of like families that have Roman Catholic background. Let me explain to you the Roman Catholic Church calls what I just taught, and I'm not saying like Catholics that you are friends with. I'm talking about the official teaching of the Roman Catholic Church teaches that what I just taught you is basically a heresy. And they call it a legal fiction. Because here's what they believe. They believe that when a baby is born, that baby does have sin that he inherited or she inherited from Adam. And so that baby has sin that needs to be taken care of. So when you baptize the baby as an infant, that baby is infused with grace. So I liken it to a gas tank. When you're a baby, your gas tank gets full of grace. But what happens is you start to live life and you start to sin. You start to lose some of that grace, okay? The grace fluctuates. And if you die with your gas tank on empty, not a good thing in the Roman Catholic system. So you've always got to keep your gas tank full. You've got to keep going back to the gas station. So how do you go back to the gas station? It's through the, sacri- the sacramental system. It's through doing penance. It's through doing the mass. It's through doing all of the things that the Roman Catholic system has, has done to help you keep that. So you can never be sure if you're truly accepted by God because you may have sinned too far to get your grace lowered and you've got to keep getting your grace back. What the Bible teaches is it's not a gas tank that fluctuates. Because it's not, the, it's not something you're infused with that you've got to work with to keep. It's a gift that comes outside of you. And once, once you have faith in Jesus, it's a one-time instantaneous legal declaration that God looks at you and says, done deal. There's no degrees of justification. It's not like, like the moment you're justified, you can lose it, you can get less justified. It's a constant state of being accepted before a holy God. It doesn't fluctuate. Now, if it fluctuated... That would bring a lot of bad news to us, because what would that mean? Have I done enough to make sure I've done enough? How do I know I haven't sinned enough to lose it? How do I know where I'm at with God? Am I really sure I'm saved? You see, the Roman Catholic Church teaches you can never have assurance of your salvation. That's what the, Roman, that's what the Protestant Reformation was really fought over. The Roman Catholic Church said to the Protestant Reformers like Calvin and Zwingli and, and, um, and, and Luther, you guys are teaching people that they can be assured of their salvation because of the righteousness of Christ imputed to them. We don't buy it. You can never be assured that you're saved. 
You never know. And how do you know? Well, you've got to keep doing the sacraments and hope that your gas tank is full. Okay? So, let's go back to Romans chapter 3. And I left my water down here. Let me get my water. So, I just wanted to show you that Galatians passage, but let's go back to Romans 3. We're looking at five glorious truths about justification by faith alone. So, number one, we saw the need. We fall short of God's glory. We can't produce the righteousness. We need to be declared righteous, not guilty before God. Number two, we saw the source. It's not what we produce. It comes from outside of us. It's a righteousness from God. It's a gift to us. Okay, let's third look at the ground of our justification. What is the assurance or what happened? What did Jesus do to guarantee it? So Paul gives three descriptions, and we're back in Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26. Paul gives three descriptions of what Jesus experienced for his people on the cross that are truly amazing. Okay, so let's look at these because Paul teaches them. So let's go back to Romans chapter 3. Okay, so let's just follow his flow of thought. Let's just pick up in verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's the need. And are justified. Okay, I just told you what justified is. It means you've been credited with the righteousness of Christ. This is grace, is a gift. Okay, through, okay, how did this come about? Through, the first thing that Paul says here is the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. The first thing we see is redemption. Now, the word redemption, the root word for redemption is redeemed or ransomed. And this word shows up all throughout the Bible. And the first time it really, we see the motif or we see the imagery is back in the Old Testament with Egypt. What was the condition of the Israelites in Egypt? They were in bondage. They were in slavery. What did God do? God brought redemption. God redeemed them by means of the Passover land. So redemption means to purchase or to bring somebody out of slavery. Like literally slavery with, with Egypt or the Israelites. But during Paul's day in the New Testament times, there were slave markets all over the place. Now it wasn't like chattel slavery like we've had in America. It was a little bit different. But you could go and purchase a person out of slavery. And you would pay the slave owner a ransom price. And if you paid the ransom price, it would release the person that was in bondage, the person in slavery. They could come and be free and live in your family. And so Paul takes this imagery both from the Old Testament where God takes the Israelites out of Egyptian bondage and then what the original audience would have known from their culture of slaves being bought out of the slave market and he uses this in the spiritual realm to talk about what our life was like before Jesus saved us and what Jesus did. So on the cross, when we talk about redemption, Paul reminds us that we were once in spiritual bondage to sin, to Satan. And through the blood of Christ, Jesus purchased us and paid for our salvation. So, so redemption, think of redemption as this. Christ in His blood, death on the cross, bought you at a wonderful price out of your spiritual slavery and brought you freely into God's family. But you were in spiritual bondage. 
Matthew 20, 28. The Son of Man came to be served, or not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, to bring redemption, to purchase us. Ephesians 1, 7 says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. We have redemption in his blood. He gave his life as a ransom. And then Peter tells us in 1 Peter 1, 18-19, knowing this, that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So Paul says the ground of your justification, the only way you can be justified through faith is because of what Christ did on your behalf. And the first thing Paul says he did is he, he brought you redemption. He bought you out of spiritual slavery. Okay, the second word, it's another I-O-N word, justification, redemption. This one's propitiation. I'm sure everybody here knows what propitiation is. We use that word all the time, right? Your translation may not even have the word propitiation. If you have like an NIV or a modern translation, it may use the word atoning sacrifice or sacrifice of atonement, but let's just keep going here. Look at verse 25. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Propitiation in his blood. God put Jesus forward as a propitiation. Now what in the world is, I'm giving you some big words tonight, okay? So you come to Wednesday night, you're going to get big words. Justification, redemption, propitiation. And if you're from the Cajun South, it's propitiation. I call them the Sean words. Propitiation, justification. I'm just joking. What is propitiation? Well, here's the issue. Propitiation deals with the wrath of God. We don't often talk about the wrath of God. Now, the wrath of God is not the rage of God. Okay, rage is an out-of-control anger. It's an, it's an anger. L- let me tell you what rage is. Rage is, over here in the nursery, you put two kids in there and one toy and say, go at it. That, that's rage. Okay, That's infantile rage. Zeus throwing lightning bolts because he had a bad hair day. That's not what we're talking about here. Okay, It's not out-of-control rage flying off the handle. What God's wrath is, is because he's holy, it's his settled and righteous anger towards sin, and he has to punish sin. Okay, So think about it this way. This is kind of sobering, but I want you to think about it. There are two ways that God's going to pour out his wrath or his justice upon sin. The first is it will be poured out forever in hell on those who do not believe in Jesus. Or number two, it was poured out on Jesus and he took that so that we would never have to take it. I say choose option two. You don't want option one. So propitiation is this. It involves the turning aside or the absorbing of God's wrath and that's what Jesus on the cross experienced. He he experienced the full justice of of God in his body against our sin, he took the righteous wrath of God. And the Bible is very clear that without Jesus, we're under God's wrath. John 3.36 says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him, remains on him, which assumes that if you don't believe in Jesus, that wrath's already there. It's not going away. The only way it goes away is if you believe in Jesus. 
Matthew 27, 46, about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemma, segbactini, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now we could talk a lot about what Jesus experienced there being forsaken on the cross, but it was in those moments where Jesus was being punished in our place for the sins that we should have been punished for. God was treating, even though Jesus had never sinned, God was treating Jesus as if he had sinned, even though he never did, because he was taking our sin. Our sins were being credited to him on the cross. He was being put forward as a propitiation in his blood, as Paul says here. And then, again, the word in Hebrews 2.17, Therefore he had to be, make, be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So you can only be justified as a free gift, declared legally righteous before God, on account of Jesus being your redemption. He bought you out of spiritual bondage. Propitiation. He took God's wrath in your place. And then the third thing Paul says here is demonstration. Demonstration. What does he say there in verse 25? whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to receive by faith, this was to show or to put on display God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He passed over former sins. Now, let me just ex briefly explain what it means that God passed over former sins. I, I don't want to go into a lot of detail on this. Basically what it means is, it, you can think of a perfect example in the Old Testament. Think about David for a moment. Did David commit murder? Yes. Did David commit adultery? What was the penalty in Israel for those two sins? The death penalty. God passed over those sins. Kind of put it on credit, if you will. And then when Jesus died on the cross, he not only paid for the sins of us going, like the people that were going to be after Jesus, he paid for the sins of those in the Old Testament who were his people. Now, the, the blood of the goats and the bulls, that was temporary. I mean, that was, a, that was a yearly thing, but it didn't fully and finally pay for the sins of the Old Testament people. God, God passed over those sins until Jesus died. And so when Jesus died, God put on demonstration. God showed, okay, once and for all, Jesus is dying for our sins. He's being put on display. So, on the cross, Jesus was put forward as redemption propitiation, and demonstration. So, what have we seen so far in related to justification? I know there's a lot of big words tonight. Okay. We've seen the need. We need to be justified because of our sin. We fall short of the glory of God. We've seen the source. What's the source? It's God's free gift of grace. It comes from God. It's not something within us. God gave it to us by His free grace alone. And then we've seen the grounds or the basis. It was Christ's work on the cross. But there's a fourth thing. And that is, okay, how do we get justified? Is it automatic? 
What's the means of justification? How, do, how, how does this righteousness get to you? Okay, I, I, I tipped my hand earlier when I did the, the bank account illustration. How does your sin go to Jesus, and how does Jesus' righteousness go to you? Is it automatic? No, it comes through faith. It comes by faith alone, in Christ alone. Look at how many times Paul has said it. He says, verse 25, actually all the way go back up to verse 22 the righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus for all who believe verse 25 whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith verse 26 it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus So how are you justified? How are you declared righteous? By faith. Not by works. Because James 2.10 says this. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has been guilty of all of it. You can't be justified by your works because here's what God requires. Perfect, personal, and perpetual perfection, (laughs) okay? In order for you to be accepted by God, if it was possible, you need to be perfect all the time, it needs to be perpetual, it needs to be all the time, and you can never fail. So it's not like God grades on a curve, it's not like, okay, I'm 99% good, but there's that 1%. God's like, no, the 1% makes you toast. So you cannot be perfect enough to be justified. Jesus was perfect enough because he was perfect in every way and that gift of his righteousness is given to you. So, you are saved through faith. Now we talked about faith last week. What is saving faith? Remember cat? K-A-T? Anybody remember cat from last week? It's the knowledge, assent, and trust. Saving faith involves knowledge, our heads. We've got to believe the truths in our minds. That's the knowledge, the K, not the little meowing cat, K-A-T. Assent, it means we've got to agree or be under conviction that this is true for me, but then there is the trust. You've got to personally put your trust in Jesus. And and here's what I want to focus in on tonight, because oftentimes we can be very guilty of um, putting pressure on other people to focus on the quality of your faith rather than the object of your faith. So, for example, I can make you feel real guilty as a pastor. Hey, are you having your quiet time this week? How, how faithful are you to Jesus? Are you walking in faithfulness this week? And you'd be like, two things you would do. Number one, if you were really embarrassed, you'd lie to me and say, oh, yeah, I'm doing great. Because you, you want to save face. I'm doing awesome. Or the other thing you'd say to me was like, I feel so defeated, I don't even think I'm a Christian. Because what am I focusing on? I'm focusing on your faith, the intensity of your faith. We need to remember that it's not the intensity, it's not the quality, it's not the level of your faith that saves you. It's Jesus. He is the object of your faith. Oftentimes, we substitute the word faithful for faith. We wonder... How are we doing in our faith? If we have enough faith, we think of faith in more in terms of a substance, 
that kind of floats out there. That's kind of more the word, the word faith moving out there. Remember what we said last week. What is faith? It's resting and receiving in Christ alone as our object. And here's where it's very important. There's not a level of faith you need to have in order to be justified. Because number one, faith is a gift. If you are resting and receiving in Christ alone for your salvation, and it's true, not fake faith, it's truly resting and receiving in Christ, you are at that moment permanently justified. You can't lose it. It doesn't fluctuate. So justification by faith is not measured by the quality of our faith or the intensity of our faith or the degree of our faithfulness or how much or how well we repent or how much we truly trust in Jesus. The object of our faith is what is utmost important and that's in Christ alone. It's very important because, let me ask you a question. What's the subtle difference between the words faith and faithfulness? What is faith? When it comes to salvation, faith is an empty hand that's resting and receiving Christ. What is faithfulness if you use that word in salvation? How good am I doing to earn God's acceptance? Faithfulness puts the focus on you. Faith puts the focus on Christ because you're just reaching out with an empty hand and trusting him. So we just need to remember that you can have weak... You, a child who believes they're a sinner and that Jesus is the only way of salvation and knows they're going to hell without him and puts their faith in Jesus and doesn't know all the theology of maybe a seminary professor, that child is justified at that moment permanently. They may not have all the answers. Yes, is there a question? Okay. Okay. Do you know when it froze? Okay. Okay. Is it on Vimeo? Is it on Vimeo? Look down there and see. Oh, all of them are frozen? Okay. I'm just going to keep going because you guys are here and live stream people aren't here. So. Um, but what I want to talk about is the, the important little preposition, through. We are justified through faith. The best way to translate this is by means of faith. The other way it's translated is on account of faith. That's a wrong translation. Do you see the difference by, by means of faith and on account of faith? Are you saved on account of your faith? Or are you saved through faith? It's through. Because if it's on account of your faith, it takes it off Jesus and puts it on you. You're saved by your faith. Think of faith as a channel, okay? The object of your faith is the most important. It's Jesus. Jesus is who you have faith in. He's the object of your faith. It's not your faith. It's not, you're not saved by how much faith you have. Faith is merely the channel, the empty hand that reaches out to Jesus and holds on to him. So 
if your Bible has on account of faith, that's probably not the best translation because it puts the focus back on you as opposed to it being really the way it's in the Greek, through faith, the instrument. And so, I kind of explain this. The other way to wrongly translate this, as some do, is that you are justified based on your faith. If that were the case, then Christ is not the foundation of your salvation and the object of your faith, but that your faith that you've conjured up is the basis of your salvation. So think of it this way. Your faith does not save you. Christ alone saves you. We say it, you're saved by faith alone and grace alone and Christ alone, but ultimately you're saved by Christ. Faith is just the instrument. Faith is the means by which you attach yourself to Jesus. And remember this, okay, just so we don't get a big head. The faith that you had to believe in Jesus was not even your own. That was given to you as a gift. Did you have a question, Marla? Yeah, stop me if I... Yes. Yeah, that's a great question. So, in the moment of regeneration, when God takes your heart of stone and gives you a heart of flesh, when God makes you alive, when God causes you to be born again, in that instantaneous moment, faith is given to you as a gift. You personally exercise it, but the reason you exercise it is because God has given that to you because before you were dead and you couldn't exercise it because of your deadness. God had to make you alive, and in that simultaneous, instantaneous making you alive, giving you a heart of flesh, he gives you the gift of faith, and then you personally put your trust in Christ, but that trust is something that God gave you as a gift. Does that make sense? Okay, does that make sense? Okay. Yeah, so the Bible teaches that faith itself was a sovereign gift of God, and I, just everything I explained to you. But like, where do you get that, Pastor Sean? Well, are we back up, Trina? Okay, I'm still frozen. Let it go. Or is that the song? I don't know what it is. Frozen. I've never seen it. I'm probably the only person. I'm the only person. This is a side note. I'm probably the only person that's never seen Avatar, and I've never seen Frozen. And I'm sixpence none the richer. I don't care. Anyway, here we go. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So we were dead. We were under God's wrath. We were spiritually unable to come to faith in Christ. And so what God had to do was he had to give us the gift of, of faith. We talked about this last week. This is just a little bit of a review. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not of yourselves or your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. Trina, are you watching it on your phone? It's just frozen on your phone? On the phone. Okay. Well, it's recording, hopefully, to Vimeo, so we'll, we'll, get it. We'll, get, we'll get something. So, what is faith? This is from last week. Faith is resting, or receiving and resting in the finished work of Christ and in Him personally. So, the four truths we've seen so far. We've seen our need 
For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You need to be right with God. Number two, we've seen the source. It's a free gift of grace that comes from God, not ourselves. Number three, we've seen the the basis of the foundation is what Jesus did on the cross. Those three things, redemption, propitiation, demonstration. And number four, how it comes to us. How does God declare us legally righteous? It comes through faith. Resting and receiving in Christ alone. Faith alone. Not faith plus works or faith plus anything we can do. Faith plus baptism. Faith plus sacraments. Faith plus obedience. It's resting and receiving Christ alone as he's freely offered in the gospel. Now, that's the theology behind justification. You need it. God gives it to you because you need it. It's all based upon the work of Christ on the cross, and it comes to you through faith in Christ, and God declares you legally not guilty forever permanently. But there's a fifth aspect, and we're going to go to Romans chapter 5, to look at the benefits or the results or the um, blessings that come from being justified. So turn over to Romans chapter 5. And by the way, if you continue reading Romans chapter 3 and 4, in Romans chapter 4, Paul does something very interesting He basically takes two Old Testament examples. He says, listen, because he's predominantly addressing arguments that the Jews would have, because the Jews would be saying, well, this doesn't make sense, Paul, because, you know, circumcision and works, I mean, it's always been, you know, we're we're, we're accepted by God based on works, and Paul says, "Uh uh-uh, think about Abraham. Before anything, God credited to him righteousness because he simply believed. So he uses Abraham as an example. Then he uses David in the Psalms of saying, God justifies the ungodly through, through grace. And so that's kind of chapter 4. And then chapter 5, verses 1 through 2. So this is the benefit or the blessings of justification. So, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we've also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Notice the past tense that Paul uses there. Since we have been justified. One-time action. It's not a process. Sanctification is a process. Justification is not a process. It's a one-time declaration. You're only justified once, and it's permanent. It's a one-time event. The moment you trusted in Christ. Having been justified, Paul gives two blessings. What's the first blessing or benefit? He says, first, what? We have peace. We have peace with our God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now let's think about opposites. Every time that I do Bible study and I'm reading something, I always want to think, okay, let's just stop and think deeply about this. If Paul says we have peace, what's the opposite of peace? Chaos, turmoil, war, hostility. So what does that assume? That assumes that before you were justified, what did you not have? You were not at peace with God. You were at war with God. You were an enemy of God. So justification brings you into a permanent position of lasting peace. The Old Testament would use the word shalom. 
that well-being, that objective peace to know that you are in a right standing. So it's, there's, there's three types of peace the Bible speaks about. This is not in your notes, but you probably heard me say this before. There's peace with God. This is what it's talking about, peace with God. This is where your sins are forgiven, you're justified, you have peace with God. There's the peace of God. That's more the subjective feeling that you have knowing that all things are going to work out because God gives you the peace that passes understanding. And then there's peace with others. Where because you have peace with God, you can be a peacemaker. This is talking about the objective peace with God, that lasting peace. It's not a feeling. It's an objective reality based upon you having been justified. You know you're not guilty. You know there's no condemnation. So you have permanent peace with God. Not something you can hope for, not something you can wish for. It's, it's there. It's a reality. And in verse 2, the second thing we have is we have obtained access, permanent access, into this wonderful, lasting grace. Now, your translation may use different words, but I'm going to use the ESV here. It says, through him we've obtained access. Access. Now, if you come up behind a, if you come up to a door that says no access, what does that mean? Or let's put it this way: Let's say that for some strange reason I wanted to go see the president of the United States, and I walk up to the White House, and I just I don't have any credentials. I'm just you know Joe Blow, Sean Cole. Can I just walk waltz into the Oval Office, and say, "Hey, President Biden, I'm here." No, no access. Okay, I don't have permission to enter. Why? because I'm a nobody. I can't just walk into the King of England's Prince Charles or King Charles. I can't just walk into it. You don't have access to this important person. Okay, think about God for a moment. Who is the most important, glorious, majestic being in all the world, in all the universe? It's God. Before you were justified, did you have access to Him? No. You were barred access because you, in your sin, could not approach him. But what does Paul say you have now? You have access. Which means that you can boldly go directly to the most holy God and not be afraid that he's going to thump you or he's going <laughs> to hit you or smite you because you have peace and you have access. And notice what else Paul says. We've also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. We're standing in this. And the way that's worded in the original language is a permanent standing. In other words, Paul is saying you have permanent peace with God, you have permanent standing with God, you have permanent access with God. You never have to fear God is going to shove you out of His presence. You've got peace. You've got access. You've got entrance. Martin Luther made this analogy. He he looked around Germany during the day, back in his day, and he saw these manure piles, dung piles. You know what it's like, the smell of money out around here. You you know, be around feedlots. So he's like, that's our sin. We're a bunch of spiritual dung piles out in the middle of the field. But what happens when it snows? Okay, it's, there's a lot of snow out there. We're hoping it melts, but let's say white, pristine snow covers the dunghill. 
What does the dunghill look like from the outside? White, clean, pristine. What's underneath? Putrid smell. Martin Luther says, we're sinful to the core. We're spiritual dunghills, but when Jesus clothes us with his righteousness, it's like this blanket of snow comes over us. Instead of God seeing the dunghill, the stinky dunghill, what does God see? The pure white snow. And it's not us that he sees, it's the snow. And the snow represents Jesus' righteousness. So we can still be simultaneously sinful and stinky and offensive, but because we've been covered with the grace of Christ, because that, that righteousness has been credited to us, has been debited to us, God can look at us, not as dunghills, but as white as snow. Now, doctrine should always lead to devotion. Truth should always lead to thankfulness. You know the song, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing? Oh, to grace how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander? Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, O oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Our hearts are prone to wander because we're sinful. And our hearts can wander in two directions. We can wander into either legalism or we can wander into despair. So if you lose track of justification by faith alone, you can begin to get on the performance treadmill and think that you're all that and you can prove yourself to God and you can create man-made rules and you can do a bunch of legalistic things to make sure you, you stay in God's good graces. You can become very legalistic, very prideful. For example, you're always waiting for the pastor to give you the steps of how you can be closer to God because you're going to write them down and you think, I can leave this place and I'm going to do it. That's one way you can wander into legalism. The other way, people that have tender consciences and people that aren't that like full of themselves, the other ditch you can wander into is despair. I don't know if God loves me. I don't know if I've done enough. I feel like a dung hill. Why would God love me? Satan's always accusing me. I don't feel worthy. I don't even want to, when the pastor gives, gives a list of things I'm supposed to do, don't even bother me with it because I feel defeated before you even tell me. So what does justification by faith do? Don't take this the wrong way, but it, it keeps us sane. It centers us back on the fact that through Christ, God relates to us as a loving father. He accepts us based on Christ. We don't have to prove our worthiness to him. Here's the thing about justification by faith alone. This is, this is the dangers that sometimes you as Christians can begin to think. You can begin to wrongly think that if I'm doing my quiet time and I'm driving the speed limit and I'm not arguing with my spouse and I'm listening to Caleb, God must love me more. And on those days when I'm kicking my dog and I'm cussing and I'm not having my quiet time and I'm struggling, God must love me less. So when I'm doing good, God loves me more. When I'm doing bad, God loves me less. That's not true at all. God doesn't love you more when you're on all cylinders for him and God doesn't love you less when you're sinful. God's love for you is constantly love 
because it's Christ that he sees, not you. Because you've been credited with that righteousness and you have peace and access. So, let's do this. What are the implications? What are the implications? What are the, what are the applications of this wonderful doctrine? What, what, what can we take away from this? Well, first, it protects you against insecurity and guilt. This doctrine should bring great security to you as a Christian. There are certain groups of Christians that believe you can lose your salvation. If you can lose your salvation, are you ever secure you have it? Do you have assurance? Do you have security? Maybe you're always feeling guilty. You can have confidence and security that your sins have been paid in full and that the righteousness of Christ has been permanently credited to you. I brought this up Sunday, but I'll bring it up again. Romans 8, 33-34. This is in relationship to the resurrection, but listen to this. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So here's the, theolo- here's the theoretical question, the, the rhetorical question. Who can bring a charge against us? Answer? People can try. Who's the primary one that's going to bring a charge against you? Satan. Satan's going to come against you and say, you don't deserve God's love. You are scum. You are terrible. God must never love you. Don't even try. Just be in despair. Feel guilty all the time. Can those accusations stick? No, because Christ Jesus died, rose again, and is interceding. Now, we sing that song before the throne of God above. I know I'm bringing some songs we sing here to Manuel, but let me just remind you that one line. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free, for God the just is satisfied to look on Him and pardon me. So it protects you from guilt. Number two, these are all basically saying the same thing. It provides you assurance of salvation. Assurance Since you are in a permanent position of being accepted by God, you have assurance that you'll never lose your salvation and you won't ever stop being a child of God. Remember, the Roman Catholic Church teaches you can't have assurance. Other denominations teach you can lose your salvation. What the Bible teaches is once you are justified, it is a permanent, lasting condition that doesn't change. You have peace. You are a child of God forever, and you can't stop being His child. 1 John 3, 1, See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God, and so we are. And third, it produces gratitude in obedience to Christ. Now here's, Chapter 6 of Romans, Paul's going to address this, but somebody's going to stand up in the crowd and say, Paul, 
if what you're saying is true, that, we're, that we can't contribute to our salvation, that it's a free gift of grace and that God gives it to us freely, then that means that God loves to forgive and I love to sin. Let's just keep this thing going for a long time because it's a great relationship. And Paul says, by no means. It's not an excuse. You being justified and being freely acquitted of your sin and being declared righteous before God is not an excuse for you to go send your heart out. It should produce gratitude and a life of thankfulness. So it's not an excuse to continue in sin, but it's the fuel, it's the motivation for us to obey Jesus. Now, we don't do this. We don't obey Jesus to earn our salvation or earn our acceptance, Him accepting us. He's already accepted us. We do it out of thankfulness because He has already accepted us. It'd be like this. If my kids were young and I said to Aiden, Hey, Aiden, uh, go take the trash out because if you don't, you're not proving to me that you're my son. Go prove to me that you're my son by taking the trash out. What's he going to think? Well, I got, if I take, I, what else do I have to do to prove that I'm your, I'm your son? What if I said this, Aiden, you know what? We've given you a lot of gifts, and we've been very kind to you, and it would be really awesome for, you and your mom, for, for me and your mom if you'd go take the trash out because it would be helpful. And Aiden does that out of gratitude for how we've treated him as already a child, versus doing it to prove his worth as a child. So, so as a Christian, what, which one do you do? Do you obey God so that you can prove that, he, that he'll accept you? Or do you do it because he's already accepted you and you're just doing it out of thankfulness? You're not doing it to prove, to prove to God that you're worth being his child. You're already his child and you're doing it out of gratitude for what he's shown you. So you're still obeying, but you're doing it with the right motivation. So Paul says in 2 Corinthians 9, 15, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. What is this inexpressible gift? It's the gift that you're saved. I'm going to make a statement here. This is not on your sheet, but just listen to this. You are way more sinful than you could ever imagine before a holy God. But God is way more loving and gracious than you could ever imagine. You're way more sinful than you ever thought, but God's way more gracious than you ever thought. So in justification by faith, never in a million years could you accomplish this on your own. You can't work for it. You can't earn it. You don't deserve it. God gives it to you as a free gift based upon the death of Christ, and it comes to you through faith. So here are some questions to ask tonight related to these five truths we've seen about justification by faith. They're the five points I gave, but they're in the form of a question to evaluate your life tonight. Number one, do you see your desperate need for justification? Maybe you're here tonight and you, you haven't been saved. Do you see your need that you need it? You need to be right before God. You need this righteousness and you can't produce it. Do you see your need? Do you see your hopelessness? Number two, are you worshiping God as the ultimate source? This is nothing you could produce. It's solely a gift of God. God gives it to you as a gift of grace. Are you worshiping God for, for the grace that he's given you in declaring you righteous? Three, are you praising God for the cross 
as the ground for your justification? Are you, are you amazed that Jesus purchased you? Are, you? are you loving and worshiping Jesus for the cross as the only grounds for your justification? And then, are you receiving Jesus? Have you received him by faith alone? If you have, you are justified. If, if you have not, you need to, and you need to trust and receive Jesus alone as your Savior. And then the last question is, you know, are you living in the benefits of your justification? Do you have this peace? Do you have this security? Do you have this sense of your, that you're not drifting into legalism, you're not drifting into despair, you're not um, trying to prove yourself to God, but you're grateful and you're hopeful and you're solid that God loves you and accepts you. If you've been justified, you can walk out of here with this song in your heart. One last song, a lot of songs tonight. You all know this song. My hope is built on nothing less than what? Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. We're only saved by his blood and righteousness. Nothing we can do, nothing we can earn. It comes as a gift, and it brings us peace, security, and a permanent condition of being loved and accepted and not guilty before a holy God. So that leaves us tonight with 15 minutes for questions. Or maybe we just go out of here worshiping, singing that song. <laughs> Any questions you guys might have? Marlo, a question? Well, ask the first one that pops into your head. Well, ask me one question about the Catholic Church, and I'll try to do the best I can. First Timothy 4, it says, in the later times there'll be doctrines of demons and teachings of, is that what you're asking? Oh, itching ears. Okay, I'm, I'm thinking of something different. Well, okay, so let me just give you the big picture. Okay, so we as Protestants, and particularly as Baptists, believe in the sole authority of the Bible alone. Okay, so what the Bible says is our sole authority. There's no other authority out there that tells us what to believe. Okay, so there's no tradition or no person it's the scripture alone. Now, God has given pastors and teachers in the church that spend time studying it so that we can accurately present it. We're not, we don't expect everybody to have the same knowledge. That's why I'm full-time studying this to be able to preach it. But the point is, is the scripture alone is our sole authority. The Roman Catholic Church puts tradition on equal level with the scriptures. And that tradition can change and has changed and morphs based upon the Pope, encyclicals, the bishops. And so the things that they come up with 
as part of their belief system, if you're like, I don't see that in the Bible, or that's weird, or that's different, it's because they take their tradition plus the Bible to create what they believe. And so there are going to be some things that they do that aren't in line with what the Bible alone says. Does that answer your question? Yeah, it is. If you have, I have to be very careful here. I'm not trying to disparage any personal Catholic. I'm going by what their doctrinal statement. So there's a difference between the teachings of the Roman Catholic Church and individual Catholics. But what you're saying about your family is that they feel like by doing good works, they are okay with God. Okay, so let me ask you a follow-up. Are they doing good works? Okay, they think they are, but let's just ask objectively. If you were to press them and ask the next question, what good works are you doing before God that he's going to accept you? And then have them list those off. And then the next question you would ask is, how do you know enough's enough? And who's the measure of that? Okay, but I'm just saying, how do they know they've done enough? Okay, so here's what I would do next, okay? So I'm, I'm walking us through here. I'd say, okay, this goes for anybody that thinks they're a good person. Okay, anybody here think they're a good person? Doing good works, okay? Okay, I, I'm a good person. Okay, let me ask you a few questions. So go through the Ten Commandments with them. So, okay, have you ever told a lie? Well, sure, I've told a little white lie here and there. Everybody tells a lie. Okay, you've told a lie. What does the Bible say that makes you? A liar, okay? Well, let's, let's just, let's not do all the Ten Commandments. Let's do another one. Have you ever stolen anything? Oh, no, I've never robbed a bank. Okay, have you stolen a pencil? Have you, okay, I, I've stolen something. Okay, what does the Bible say that makes you? A thief. Okay, have you ever committed adultery? Oh, no, I'd never commit adultery. I've been pure. Okay, Jesus said if you've lusted in your heart after a woman, you've committed adultery in your heart. Have you ever lusted? Okay, so what, is, so what does that make you? It makes you an adulterer at heart. Okay, that's three. The Bible then says, you said you were good, but you just now admitted that you're a liar, you're a thief, and you're an adulterer at heart. Okay, so let me ask you a question. If God were to judge you based upon those, would you be innocent or guilty? And at that point, if they say innocent, then you've got to press them on that because, well, I, then, they, then there's like self-justification where it's like, well, I don't, I'm not as bad as other people. You, ha, you kind of have to think. But if they say guilty, then you have, the next question is, okay, if you're guilty, then what's the punishment for guilt? What does God rightly have to do? Have to send you to hell. Okay, do you want to know how not to go to hell if you are guilty? Because you just admitted you are. Yes, I'd like to know. Then you can share the gospel with them. But some people, but, but the law, for some people that are, for people that are so self-righteous and tied up in works-based that think they're okay, you've got to show them they're not. And, they've, and you've got to be very specific in how they're not. And that's why the Ten Commandments are there to show specifically, even if you think you've lived up to these things, you haven't because you've had bad thoughts. And God doesn't just judge you on your actions. He judges you on your thoughts. He judges you on your words. And so you've got to, what that does is it starts to, the, the law is like a mirror that exposes the heart. That's the first thing that happens. And I mean, obviously the Holy Spirit has to come in there and do work. But the purpose of the Ten Commandments is to start that plowing up of their heart to show them that they're not okay. And so I, I may, like, take them down that path. It may not be helpful just to show them in the Bible, like it says right here. What I would do is get very specific and say, tell me what good works you're doing that you think are good enough. And how good are they? 
And how do you know you've done enough? And have you gone to Mass? And, I mean, not be rude about it, but I th- quantify for them what they have to do in order to be good. Because at some point, you can say, okay, even if you've done all that, do you still know? Because the Bible says it has to be 100% perfection, 100% of the time, and it has to be all the time. And if not, nobody's going to get there. Uh, does that answer your question, Marlo? Or? Okay. Most people, yeah, most people think they're pretty good compared to the person down the street or somebody else, and that they're, 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 they're a good old person, and they, they try hard, and they're, they're, they're good before God because they don't commit the major big sins. What, what you've got to do with people like that is get them to realize that even the little sins and the sins in the heart and the thought and the words are just as much guilty before God as the big sins. And so that may take some time to do. Any other questions, comments, or snide remarks? None from Jan back there, no snide remarks? <laughs> I'm just joking. <laughs> Everybody good? All right, well, let's pray. Next week, we're going to talk about adoption. That's the next in the order. Because the Bible says once you, you're justified, and then justification is a legal declaration. Adoption is family language where you're adopted into God's family. So that's what, kind of what we're talking about next week. Okay? All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for this time that we've had tonight. And as we looked at the doctrine of justification, help us to really be thankful for the peace that we have, this, this lasting, permanent peace we have, this condition of being accepted by you and having access. Lord, help us to not, not feel guilty, but to know that we are not guilty of our sins because, Jesus, you paid for those. Help us to be secure in our salvation. Help us to have assurance. And Lord, we do pray for those in our lives that may think that they're okay because they're doing good works or that they're, they're going to church or whatever, but they never trusted and, and received you uh, as Savior, Lord. Help us to pray for them. Help us to share the gospel with them. We do pray that they, their eyes are opened to their need for you and that they would trust you for salvation. And we ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen.